0: Welcome to the Amplify to Seven Figures podcast, where we look inside the mind of seven-figure entrepreneurs to see how they amplify their business and amplify their life. Let's welcome today's guest. Today's guest has been working with small businesses for over 20 years. He's helped them grow, buy and sell them, and even finance them. He's the author of eight books about small business transactions and local investing, and he's the host of the YouTube channel with hundreds of videos about buying, selling, and financing your own small to medium-sized business. You can find him anytime on his blog at davidcbarnett.com. Please give a very warm welcome to the show, David Barnett. How are you doing, David? I'm doing great, Paul. How are you today? I am super, super, super good. And David, I want to dive straight into date. So we we talk about the word small business. That's quite quite a, a wide aspect, right? So it could be like a mom and pop, entrepreneur. It could be 250 employees. So when you talk about helping small businesses like... What kind of size do you see as a sweet spot for buying and selling businesses?
1: Yeah. So I I very clearly define small businesses as a business with a a cash flow under half a million dollars a year. That's the the net free cash flow after everything is done. So you you know, yes, they can be very, they can vary across a wide degree as far as what they actually look like. It could be a little shop with a dozen employees, but you could also have, for example, a fuel oil dealer, which is doing 10 million dollars in revenue but their cost of goods sold is 97% of sales and so it's still a small business even though a lot of dollars run through there. And so this is why I define it by cash flow because the cash flow at the end of the day really defines the the situation of what's going on and what the day to day is probably like with the owner and how they relate to their employees and the sort of systems and things that you can find in a business like that.
0: Oh, yeah, and that make, that makes a lot more sense. Like, like you say, it's just having a number of employees doesn't mean mean that you are a big big business. So, and a lot of people are thinking, especially since the pandemic and everything, people are thinking about starting their own business and you know the whole screw the nine to five. Mm-hmm. So, like, why should someone consider buying a business over just starting a new one?
1: Well, it's a great question. So when you start a business, of course, we know that the failure statistics of new businesses are quite high. And when you want to be in business, I'll tell you, and I don't know if I'm sharing a secret, I shouldn't, but really you need two things to be successful in business. You need a product or service people want, and then you need the people that will buy it, right? Mm-hmm. The, two, the two parts. And so when you start a new business, you may come up with a product or service that people want, but then you have to find the customers And presumably the people out there are buying whatever it is you're selling from somebody else right now. So if you think about a new business that's opened up in your neighborhood, for example, they have to do a lot of promotion. They have to lure people away from where they're buying whatever it is today and convince those people to come over to you. And so it means not only are you starting off without customers, you're starting off working for less. You're maybe using price promotion, spending a lot on advertising, et cetera. When you buy a business that's already existing, you've got the product and service. On top of that, you probably have, you're acquiring employees that know how to deliver the product and service, and you're getting the customers. So from day one, you should have a positive cash flow if you're buying a good business. When you start one, not only do you have to come up with the startup expenses, you also then have to deal with financing any losses until you reach that point where you start to make money down the road.
0: Mm. And that kind of drives into the next point about, so, if if I was going to go out and start a new business tomorrow, uh, or like you know our listeners were going to go out and start a business tomorrow uh, and buy someone else's, what are some of the common mistakes that you want to look out for?
1: Yeah, so when you get into the world of of buying and selling businesses, there are some conventions out there that that have been arrived at by the industry, which which allow you to kind of compare one business versus another. And here, here are some of the problems, though, is that the, the numbers you will often see describing the cash flow um, are not real. So let, let me let me get into that a little bit. When you look at a small business, often they'll describe the seller's discretionary cash flow. And that is the total amount of money available to an owner operator that works full-time. And that, let's say, for example, the cash flow being advertised is 150000 dollars People will say, ooh, if I buy this business, I'll get 150000 dollars But that's not true. So that 150 figure out of that has to come several things. So number one, any uh, taxes have to be paid out of that money. Uh, Any debt service has to be paid out of that money. Um, Usually amortization and depreciation were added back when you arrive at that figure, which means any capital expenditures that have to go back into the business have to come out of that money. And most importantly, um, some amount of money for you to take home to support your family has to come out of that figure as well. And so when I work with a lot of buyers, they'll be getting excited about the magnitude of the opportunity they perceive. And when I sit down and show them exactly where those funds have to fall, um, they realize that it's not maybe quite as exciting as they thought. And, and unfortunately, what will happen is I'll sometimes run into people who've already done a deal that are then in a bit of trouble. And when I start to look at the deal that they did, I'll show them that the mistake that they made is they got overly excited about those cash flow figures they were presented, and they ended up overpaying for the business because they didn't understand exactly what demands were going to be on that
0: cash flow. Mm. Do you see that happen a lot, Dennis? And is, is that something that people do the first time around, or
1: well, even then, like... even in bigger businesses? Because in in bigger businesses, they typically use the EBITDA uh, level of cash flow, which is earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. And people will throw that number around as though it was profit and it's not because if you have a successful business, you're going to have taxes. Um, You're going to have interest payments. If you've got any kind of finance or leverage involved in the deal. And if you have stuff that wears out, you're going to have to recognize in some way um, the replacement of that capital equipment. Accountants have come up with depreciation as a method of recognizing that there are other ways that we sometimes use, but It's important to really get your arms around what exactly is going on in the business, how it's going to fit in with you as the new owner, how it should perform under you as the new owner. Two questions we we, we often ask when people look at a business is, what is the cash flow that I will enjoy? And number two, can I expect it reasonably to continue under my stewardship? So this is where we start to get into things like systems and operating manuals and and, and things of that nature. Um, If you buy a business that is entirely within the head of the current owner, it makes it much more difficult for you to answer that second question in a positive way.
0: Mm, mm, Yeah. And I mean, we're obsessed in our business about systems and processes. How how important are those kind of things to the value of the business?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I, I speak with this a lot with business owners and they'll, you know, want to know what their business is worth and how, you know, they can sell it and what's the best way to sell. And, uh, you know, I, I keep repeating to them the the number, the value that someone is going to come up with is going to be based on the cash flow of the business. But if the potential pool of buyers is limited to people just like you that happen to be younger, which if you think about it, if everything's in the person's head, Think about someone who, you know, installs roofs on houses or something. If they've got nothing written down, then they're basically going to have to find someone with all the same experience and knowledge who happens to be younger to be their buyer. That's a very small group of people. But if they've got everything systematized and organized, if they've got, you know, a standard method for producing a quotation, doing an estimate, if they have standard methods for managing the staff and ordering the the materials and making sure everyone shows up on the job site together at the right time and, and, you know, executes the job and all the health and safety regulations are followed. Well, now you can start to show just about anyone how they can come in and run that business because there's actually an owner's guide, an operations manual. And so now what we've done is we've expanded the pool of potential buyers from just those people with certain skills to a whole cast of people. And that ultimately is what's going to make it easier for that person to sell the business. It's going to make it more marketable. And we're going to be able to find a potential candidate that much sooner.
0: So, so is it almost uh, a supply and demand th- thing then? So it's not so much as operate, having the operations dialed in puts the value of the business up. It's actually the fact that it opens up a bigger pool of buyers. So there's more competition competing for the value of the business.
1: Yeah. And you know, there can be an impact on price. If, if somebody sees it just as a disaster and they don't really know what's going on, then they're going to want to discount the price because, of course, they're afraid that once they take over, more concerns will be discovered or more problems will be uncovered. When you come into a business that's well-documented, I'll I'll give you an example. Um, I once helped somebody um, sell their restaurant, and in a meeting with the buyer, the buyer said, you know, I've never been in the restaurant business. I'm concerned that the staff might leave, and I really am going to be relying on those people. And what the seller said was quite interesting. He said, listen, it's a restaurant. I can guarantee in the next year, all the staff will leave. And he said, this is how I deal with that. And he started to describe the process he used for advertising online to find the best candidates, how he sorted out the serious folks from the people that weren't so serious, how he developed a system for interviewing them and how he developed these training packages that new candidates would take home with them so that when they showed up on their first day of job, they had some familiarity with what they were going to be doing. And so he described how he used a process and a series of procedures to deal with the problem of turnover and it completely removed that concern from the buyer's mind. They then realized, okay, this is just like any other problem in the business. How do I advertise? How do I serve the customer? How do I find, you know, make sure there's enough parking, et cetera. Hiring people is exactly the same thing.
0: And that's, that's interesting. You say, you know, it's all about, it is about systems and processes. And but I also want to know, like, surely it takes a certain kind of person to buy a business. So what, what skills should someone have if they want to go ahead and buy a business?
1: You know, it's, it's, it's interesting that you asked that because um, you know, that Michael Gerber book, E-Myth Revisited, you probably read that at some point, the uh, most businesses are started by technicians. So people who have a certain skill or trade in a given industry, what I find is that most of the people who buy businesses tend to be a little bit more sophisticated A lot of them are coming out of careers in middle management of larger organizations. They tend to have a greater understanding and appreciation for systems and methodologies and and procedures. And they will look at these businesses that are relatively disorganized and they'll see how they can apply their own um, understanding of systems to make the business better. And so what I like to, what I like to say is that a lot of the sellers who started a business have an operational hat on they think about how they serve customers and what they do every day because they're often busy in the work mm-hmm. whereas the buyers have more of an investment mentality they're thinking more along the lines of you know how much money will i get if i put this money in if i make investment of x what will my return y be and then you know to make things really great how am i going to grow this and so i use uh, the example often of the small garage that does auto repair You know, a guy opens it up because they know they have the skills and then they get busy. They hire a second person. The two of them are busy. Then they hire a third. But that first person is still greeting customers, answering the phone, ordering the parts, you know, doing the advertising meeting with the yellow page guy every year and can't expand themselves to go beyond, you know, supervising two other people. So they get stuck. And then you see this business sit there for like a decade without any further growth. And someone will come along and buy it and they'll implement a bunch of processes and procedures. They'll hire a front counter person who just takes care of customers and, you know, ordering parts. And then this new owner can then leverage those systems to start to grow. And then you end up seeing them move to a bigger location where they can have mechanic four, five, and six. And those are often the skills that the buyer brings because they tend to be a little bit more sophisticated in their thinking. And they're actually looking at the business as an asset to be grown Whereas a lot of the sellers look at the business as simply the vehicle of their lifestyle.
0: Mm, mm. I, I, I don't know if you're like me that we, like if you go out for a meal anywhere or you, you basically visit any destination that you, do you look around and go, Oh, they could improve that system, that system, that system. They've so much put the value of the business up.
1: It's uh, there, there's certain places I won't go because I get frustrated. Honestly, yeah. honestly, Paul.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Don't, don't worry. You're not, you're not the only one. I mean, we went, uh, we went to Blackpool recently and uh, we were in a restaurant in there and it, it's don't get me wrong, quite quite a, nice, quite a nice restaurant on, on site and the the guy who was doing the concierge on the front and actually taking us to the table was like, he just hadn't been trained properly to, to create that professionalism as well. You know, the whole philosophy of fix it now, it, it, it was, it was like, Oh, just sorry about that. It's like, well, firstly, give us some money off our bill <laughs> <laughs> so, you know and it, it was just like really weird comments and everything and i was like but then the first night was amazing with the person that we had they were just like so smooth so yeah consistency do you, feel, do you feel that's something that lack reduces business valuations is a lot of the time the consistency doesn't drop down to all the staff
1: well you know someone who's a really clever buyer would actually be looking for that as an opportunity yeah because you know, you know that those operational issues are leading to an overall decline in the potential performance of that business. Someone would go and have the experience that you had and think, you know, I'm not going to go back there. So if a new owner came in who understood, you know, the importance of consistent service delivery and everything, and they fixed those things, well, then they could use that business as a platform to build a much more successful business for themselves. Um, I call it the difference between um, learning through, you know, a, a standard procedure versus learning through folklore. Um, you can have a business where, you know, given restaurants, you know, I've had groups before where I've been talking about systems in a restaurant. It's an easy example because everyone's been to a restaurant, right? And I'll say, you know, has anyone here ever been to a restaurant? And has everyone, anyone here ever worked in one? And I usually get a few hands because a lot of young you know, people, when they're younger in life, they work in restaurants. And I'll say, were you ever taught how to put a plate in front of someone? And it's not just that you serve from one side and remove from another, but people who've worked in a fancier restaurant might've been taught, for example, that the protein is at six o'clock on the plate. Mm -hmm. There's a certain way that the plate is supposed to be sat in front of the guest. And that is drilled into them because everything has to be perfect. When you think about fine dining, for example, you know, people are not really paying those prices for the food. They can get food anywhere. People are paying those prices because of an, an entire experience package And all of the emotions they're gonna experience with the other guests that they're there with during the time that they're in that environment. And so this is what I point out about businesses like Starbucks all the time. Um, You know, Starbucks I don't believe is in the coffee business. I believe Starbucks is in the 20 minute vacation business Mm. where people are looking for an escape from the hectic reality of their day to day. And they know that if they go over there and they buy that thing, that expensive coffee, that they're going to be able to sort of, you know, chill out in that environment with those other people. And they're going to be able to walk away a little while later and feel that they've gotten that little bit of, of respite from the, from the hectic life that they have. And, you know, this is why, you know, I see a lot of local coffee businesses and they don't understand how they can't really compete, uh, even though they're charging less and all this other kind of thing. And it's really the whole package that people are buying into.
0: Yeah. And do you think that happens? Like you mentioned about fine dining. Um, Does that also happen on, on the other end of the scale as well? So for example, like McDonald's, like if I, I, I go there sometimes, but I don't go there because, Oh, wow. The food's amazing. I go there because I know it doesn't matter where I go in the world. It's going to be the same.
1: Yeah. You're, you're, you're actually buying the process. Um, There's one group session that I do uh, with clients where I talk about this and I talk about how, um, you know, especially in a business where somebody doesn't have, you know, a lot of ways for people to experience, you know, if you, if you sell frozen yogurt, you can give away samples, people can taste it. But if you're in a more complex kind of business, how do you convey the fact that people are going to be pleased with the result? And what I've come up with, you know, is to do what McDonald's does is so you actually talk about process so, you know, I got into the business of helping people buy and sell businesses years ago when I used to own a franchise business brokerage office. And part of what I had paid for when I got into that franchise business was a checklist that was 200 items long of how you sell a business. Number one, you do this. Number two, you do this. Number three, if this then skipped to number 25. Like, so you didn't go through every item, but it was a systematized order of how you make this happen so that when you end up at the solicitor's office at the end, there isn't a missing piece of paper, right? So that the deal gets to close. And I was in my early thirties at the time when I was doing this and I would meet with people in their fifties and sixties. And, you know, they had gray hair and they were running these multimillion dollar businesses and they would look at me and I'm sure they were wondering, what's this kid going to do to help me? How can he help me? And I would explain the process. And I would talk about how we had this ordered system of doing business to make sure that we didn't forget anything. And I knew they were likely going to go talk to my competitors afterwards. So I would always remind them. I'd say, look, if you're going to go talk to any of my competitors, be sure and ask about their process and see if you know, they can show you what they do, knowing full well that none of them had any kind of <laughs> documented process, right? And so, so I was able to completely set myself apart um, in my own you know, marketing sales meetings Uh, by leaning on the process. And it's very critical, you know, being organized in this way. One of the problems that can come up is when you start to talk about growth through acquisition. So if you have a business already and you go looking for a business in the same industry, in the same field, you, it's very tempting to think, well, I can just buy them and kind of roll that into my existing business. Mm -hmm. And what can happen is you can get conflict between the systems that are in place in both of those businesses And the very best people who do this growth through acquisition, they approach it with an open mind because sometimes you can make an acquisition and in that acquisition, you can find a better way to do part of what you're already doing in your existing business. And so I've seen people do mergers and acquisitions and actually adopt systems that they found in the target company and bring them back to the home office uh, because they found some sort of improvement in that, in whatever it is that they're doing at that other business.
0: The, the thing that I've always thought about when it comes to growth through acquisitions is like, if, if you've got, say, say, for example, with our stuff, right? So if we went to acquire another agency, now they've got all their client base and their client culture of what's expected there. Like, how hard is it to transition from a merger perspective to be able to introduce yourself to all those clients where they're like, hey, well, I was paying to work with these guys, not with you. Like, how, how, does, how does that swap over and bring together?
1: It's a great question. One of the, one of the uh, topics or one of the words that you'll see when you, when you get into this world is this uh, thing called goodwill. So goodwill is an accounting term, and it's also a little bit of a fuzzier term that describes how people feel about the business. So in the strict accounting sense, what goodwill is, is the difference between the purchase price of a business and the value of its tangible assets. So if you buy a business for a million dollars and there's $500,000 worth of stuff in there, then when you make that acquisition, you're paying for $500,000 of stuff and $500,000 of goodwill because you've agreed to pay a million for the business. Now, where does that that goodwill actually represents the feelings of the customer and the community towards that business? That's why they're able to generate a cash flow that's worth more than the things inside the business. But where is that goodwill? It's not, you know, in the name all the time. It's not always in the business all the time. Sometimes the goodwill exists in the relationships, especially with a very small business. So you pointed out, you know, you could have an agency with uh, an, an individual that is the spokesperson and owner of that agency. And everybody knows that person through their marketing and their sales meetings. And people want to do business with that person you buy that business, if that person departs, they could be taking the goodwill with them and you may not get the advantage of what you've acquired in that acquisition. And this is why in a business like that, often part of the terms would be that that particular individual actor has to become part of your team for a given period of time. Mm -hmm. And this is so that the transfer of goodwill can occur, where people can start to deal with other team members and, and the customer can eventually learn, you know what? I don't have to deal with that particular person all the time. Their, their team is competent. They're part of this organization. I'm getting good service, et cetera. Um, when people are wanting to sell a business, one of the most dangerous things that they can do is, is have this, you know, I don't know what you could call it, like a cult of personality kind of business where everybody's focused on that one individual, um, you know, transferring you know let's look at some famous icons right you know colonel sanders right i mean he built kfc when he sold kfc well part of the deal was he had to make himself available for the advertising and promotion because as far as a lot of people were concerned he was kfc and now now eventually it's become sort of a little drawn caricature of what he looked like but they eventually were able to move the goodwill from the live individual to a logo you know to really make it into a situation where the goodwill of KFC is now in the brand versus being in that individual.
0: Yeah, it's a really fascinating insight into you know how how to make that transition as well. And I think it's something that a lot of people get scared of in the first place and uh, don't go. I'm just not even going to bother because it just sounds too complicated. Like if anyone was thinking about doing a merger or acquisition or, you know, maybe even buying the first business. Like, how do you get over those mental blocks of thinking, hey, how, how the hell do I do this?
1: <laughs> so the, the, the key thing is to understand where the risks are and then to make sure you do the deal with a structure that is actually built around mitigating those risks. So I'll give you an example. Um, you know, most deals, the buyer puts in some money. Uh, maybe there is a bank involved. There might be a bank loan involved. And then the seller usually ends up not receiving all the money on closing day. So use the example of a million dollar business. The seller might receive six, seven $700,000 on closing day. And the balance of the money is paid out over several years, maybe with monthly payments. That's called seller financing or seller note. Oftentimes those payments are contingent upon certain things happening. So number one, you know, that there wasn't any uncovered you know, malfeasance or fraud or problems in the business after the takeover, because any of those things would be offset against that note. But number two, there might be some participation level required on the part of the seller. Um, a lot of the times, if a seller is owed money, then, well, now they have a, an actual vested interest in the success of the buyer. They need the buyer to be successful in order for them to collect the balance of the payments. When you have that dynamic, you suddenly have an alignment of the interests of both parties, which means that the seller now is willing to be supportive and give advice. And oftentimes, we'll actually see sort of a mentorship coaching kind of role evolve uh, with the seller being available to kind of give guidance to the buyer. You know, Something happens a year into the deal and the buyer doesn't know what to do. They pick up the phone, they call that person, they say, hey, did you ever face a problem like this? What did you do? What do you think I should do? And In most of the deals that I've worked on, um, probably with the exception, one or two, Paul, the buyer and seller end up becoming friends because they spend so much time together through the transition. And then later on, they keep talking to each other, whether it's on the phone or in person, um, that they develop a friendship. And for a lot of the sellers, you know, sellers are not just concerned about money. Um, If you read the literature about selling a business, a lot of it talks about, you know, get the best price, et cetera. But a lot of them are concerned about legacy in terms of what they've built carrying on or making sure that their employees are going to be cared for by the new owner. And so they want to make sure that they choose the right person. And I've actually seen deals with multiple bidders where the business has been sold to the person who didn't offer the most money, Uh, but the seller had the greatest degree of confidence in that person, knew they'd be a good operator. And by extension, that the future of their employees, for example, and their legacy would be better protected by choosing that buyer over the others.
0: Yeah, that brings us very much into our next question. It is what do you want to be remembered for when you die?
1: Um, I want to be remembered for helping people avoid bad deals. I mean, that is the mission of my business. Um, I got underway and I started making videos on YouTube years ago when I started to run into people who made big mistakes when they bought businesses and ended up losing their life savings. And I thought, wow, you know, here's a person who did something and they didn't know any better. And you know, once upon a time, information wasn't as readily available as it is today. And I thought, if I could help this person with some information, they would not have entered into that deal. And it's not just buyers. I see sellers do this too, where i <clears> will <throat> give you an example, of one that happened just a little while back. A seller was trying to sell his business, wasn't having much success working with a broker. He contacted me. He wanted me to look over everything and see why the business wasn't selling. I showed him, you know, his asking price was almost double what it should have been. Mm. And I showed him why his business wasn't worth nearly as much as he thought. And then I also showed him about the seller note and what he could expect as far as a deal offer, how much down, how much over time. And when I was done with my presentation, he didn't say anything while he was silent and we stared at each other through the zoom screen. And after about three and a half minutes, which is an eternity, you know, yeah. on on a call, he said to me, he said, you know, three months into selling, I got an offer that looked almost like that. And he didn't know it was a reasonable offer. Yeah. And, and this was the tragedy is that he had then gone on for another year and a half or more trying to find someone who's going to pay his inflated price not realizing what he actually had to sell, what it was worth and what that offer would look like. And <clears throat> small businesses, you know nobody cashes out of a small business. Small businesses sell for relatively low multiples because they are very risky. Um, and so when people decide they want to sell, it's not because they usually want to you know, get riches of money. It's because something personally has changed in their life that makes them unable to continue being the operator. And when that change occurs, whether it's related to sickness, something in your family, or you know, a need to relocate, um, you know, the desire to retire or something like this. Well, once the decision is made, you want to move on to the next chapter. You want to turn the page and go. And so then it becomes about finding an expedient solution under reasonable terms. Because if you keep an owner in there after they've decided they don't want anything to do with the business anymore... What will eventually happen is that their own attitude will cause things to erode in the business. You know, you, you mentioned the restaurant experience you had. Mm. If that restaurant were owned by someone who was fed up with being a restaurateur and they overheard the interaction that happened at your table, they might just shrug their shoulders. They don't really care. They're Mm. done. Whereas an enthusiastic, energetic owner that was trying to grow that business over overhearing that exchange might take the employee aside afterwards and say, look, let's let's work a little bit on some of this. I want to train you on a few tips to help improve the customer experience. Because that person's full of vim and vinegar. They want to make things go, they want to make things happen. And once that's lost in a business, particularly a small business where almost all of the employees have direct interaction with the owner, the attitude day-to-day of the owner has a huge impact on what's going to happen. And on the energy level that people are going to see between the employees and customers, for example.
0: And I think we can take that as a the, the quick win to amplify your business today as well. We got two two questions answered in one there. Uh, very, very much a, so if you are the leader of the business, like, you know, if you, if you still feel you've got the passion for it, be, be show up as that person every day, because otherwise like everything else suffers, you've got to be the leader and the visionary. So that's fantastic stuff, David. And secondly, what seven-figure entrepreneur would you nominate to be on the show next?
1: Oh, you know what? I've got a whole list of them amongst my clientele. Why don't I send you a list of a few names yeah. and, uh, and, and line up a few people, uh, especially if you want to talk to some who've uh, doubled or tripled their business through acquiring other companies.
0: Fantastic. Yeah, that sounds amazing. And then finally, David, where can people find out more about you?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, the best place to go would be my blog site which is at davidcbarnett.com and you'll find, you know, blog posts and links to playlists on YouTube. I'm on YouTube, been on there since 2014. I put out a new video every week based on questions people ask me. So if you're interested in buying and selling businesses or doing business deals, come on over and subscribe. The the audio feed is also available as a podcast on all the regular sources. Just look for David C Barnett and you'll
0: you'll find me out there fantastic david We'll will put all that in the show notes really appreciate you having you on the show today it's been an absolute pleasure and you have been listening to the amplified to seven figures podcast with me paul ace and my amazing guest david barnett please remember amplify your business and amplify your life bye for now Thanks for listening to the Amplify to Seven Figures podcast. To access the show notes, episodes, and this month's giveaway, head over to www.amplify to seven figures.com. Remember, amplify your business, amplify, amplify your, your life. life.